Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. By now, you've probably heard me talk about my new book, Love Every Day. It will be out in the world in October, but you can pre-order it any time before then. And let me tell you a little something. Pre-ordering is one of the best ways you can support authors and their new books. Why? More pre-orders equals more buzz about the book, and more buzz means reaching even more readers. Because of this, I really want to thank anyone who has already pre-ordered or who will pre-order Love Every Day by offering them two free gifts. You can sign up to receive these goodies by heading to the link in the show notes of this episode or by visiting loveeverydaybook.com. You're going to fill out a quick little form with your proof of a pre-order purchase, like a screenshot of your e-receipt, plus your mailing address and your email. And then you will receive a complimentary Love Everyday journal in the mail. It's so beautiful. And a digital reader's guide in your email inbox. Both of these will arrive in mid-October, right when you're receiving your Love Everyday book. The journal is going to be the perfect place for you to jot down your thoughts and reflections as you read, and the digital reader's guide is full of discussion questions that you can use to spark solo reflection or to spur conversation in a book club, for example. Plus, the reader's guide includes the Love Everyday playlist with some of my favorite songs that celebrate growth, healing, and connection. To learn more about this offering, click the link in the show notes or head to loveeverydaybook.com. If you have questions about the pre-order gifts, email info at dralexandrasolomon.com for support from our team. Thank you so much. Hi there. Welcome to another episode of Reimagining Love. It is just you and me today, and we're going to devote 
this entire episode to one listener question. I've not done that before. And so, you know, we're just going to see, see how it goes, see how we feel about it. So this listener question is just so rich and so wonderful. And I'm excited to, to dive in and talk through this with you. So this question came in from Naya, who is a listener in Maryland, and she uses she, her pronouns. And here's what she wrote. When my children were four and two, I was divorced. I didn't want them to grow up thinking a silent, loveless marriage was okay. At that point, I was shunted by my conservative culture and family in a new town with a new job. I focused inward, healing my own heart and epigenetic traumas to ensure the best futures for my children. I have tried to give them a life that never lacked due to being raised by a single mom. It's been 14 years and I have never dated because I wanted to focus on them and had no space in my life. I'm now starting to see someone special after a year of vetting and the kids are thrown since I was always just home. Now I find myself explaining myself to them. They're now 18 and 16 needing their approval to be out, them watching me. I pride myself on being close with my kids, and I know some boundaries get blurry because of that. They like my boyfriend. I think it's the sharing me and discomfort of not having me just sitting home alone available at all times. I guess my question is, how do I handle this? Oh, okay. I first want to point out that Naya may have used a term that is new to some of you, which is the term epigenetic trauma. So epigenetics is the study of how behavior and experiences and environment, in other words, the events that happen to you, which includes traumatic events and trauma responses, how all of that, the power of behavior and experiences and environment has the power to change the way your genes work. So what researchers are finding, and this research is maybe just about 10 years old, Researchers are finding that experiences don't change your DNA sequence per se, but experiences and traumas can affect how your body reads the DNA, what gets expressed, what doesn't get expressed from your genetic sequencing based on the powerful impact of experiences, especially experiences like trauma. And so some of the early examples of epigenetic research included looking at what researchers also call ancestral trauma, like a study done in 2013 about children whose parents lived through the Dutch famine or the hungry winter during World War II, or there was some research in 2015 about children of parents who survived the Holocaust and the ways in which the children showed atypicalities or changes in DNA around things like myelination and methyl, all this kind of stuff that is <laughs> beyond my scope of practice, but ways in which the body codes and expresses what it does with the DNA as a result of being the kid of somebody who survived trauma. And now that research has been expanded from things like a famine or a Holocaust to experiences of trauma and not just changes in subsequent generations around physical health consequences, but also consequences like post-traumatic stress disorder in the kids, right? The kids didn't experience the trauma, but they have 
the kind of echoes of PTSD because the parents or the grandparents experience the trauma. So things like increased risk of depression or anxiety or PTSD based on what your ancestors survived and therefore passed on to you in an epigenetic way. So when Naya is talking here about healing her heart and her epigenetic trauma, what she's saying is that she's been diving into her lineage. She's been looking at her parents and her grandparents, the kinds of traumas that they endured, which likely affected their DNA and which likely affected her DNA. And what Naya knows from this work is that as she heals herself, she's transforming at the level of DNA expression, what she's passing along to her kids, and then what her kids will pass along to their kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you want to nerd out a bit more on epigenetics and epigenetic trauma, we've linked a few articles and a couple of book suggestions in the show notes. So Naya, I first want to just thank you for sending in this question. And I want to reflect what I think is really clear in your message is this theme of intentionality. It just sounds like you have been so incredibly intentional. You were intentional about the model of relationship that you wanted or didn't want to expose your kids to. You were intentional about your own healing journey. It sounds like you've taken that really seriously and really thoughtfully. You were intentional about holding off on dating for lots and lots of years. And I can imagine all of the ways that your kids have benefited from your intentionality. I can also imagine that you being intentional as an adult offers healing to the little kid that you once were. And I wonder and I suspect that perhaps you grew up in a home where there wasn't perhaps the kind of intentionality that you offered. And that's the kind of thing that never ceases to bring tears to my eyes, which is when I know, I witness, I work with people who give their kids something that they didn't get. And so I have a hunch that perhaps Naya grew up in a home where the people who raised her were not able to be intentional, were not able to kind of look around Naya and figure out what might she need, what might she not need, what might do harm, what might benefit her, if they didn't have the kind of bandwidth or capacity to offer Naya intentionality that created the wounds that she's been working on healing. And in doing so, she not only offers something different to her kids, but she offers something different to little Naya that lives right here. I've got my my hand on my heart, which is where it always goes when we're talking about, you know, tending to little you. And so I, I can imagine that Naya having parented in this way is healing in both directions. So I want to reflect that. I also want to reflect back just the way in which Naya's family system, it sounds like, was not able to support Naya in her decision to divorce. That the kind of ideologies around divorce, the beliefs around divorce, the stigma around divorce really kept Naya from getting what she needed when she made that decision many years ago. And so I can imagine that led to deeper feelings of loneliness, isolation, and needing to really rebuild from the inside out made a hard thing harder, right? Divorce is hard enough. Even a, even a good, gentle, peaceful, intentional divorce is hard, but it's even harder to do without a network of support around you. 
So when I think, therefore, about the kind of intentionality that Naya has brought all along the way, I can imagine that alongside the pride she feels about being intentional, I suspect there's also a blend of sadness, of frustration, and perhaps some shame. This part of you that says, with all of that care, with everything I did, I had hoped upon hope that when and if I did make the choice to open my heart up again, to open myself to love, that at least my kids would be able to adjust and adapt. It's like, but I did all the homework. I look at what I did. I did this. I did this. I did this. I dotted the I's. I crossed the T's. I did everything I could in my power and look where we are. My kids are sitting there, you know, judging and commenting and uh, it's not at all going the way that I wanted it to go. So I just want to name and reflect that, how frustrating and disappointing that must be. Blending families is messy, right? That's like understatement of the year. Families are messy. You know, families where the original two grownups are clicking along just fine are messy and blended families are messy and blending families is messy. And there are not hard and fast rules. And I hear that one of the things that Naya did, which is something that all therapists would want single parents to do, which is, you know, go slowly to vet, to not sort of put a new partner right in front of your kids right away. And she did that. She did that. You know, there's no hard and fast rules about when. But she took some time and she took some care and she made sure that somebody she really wanted to invest in before she introduced them to the kids. And also the experience of blending families is based by so many factors, isn't it? How a family emerges from a divorce, how partners recouple after divorce rests on lots of factors like the timing of the divorce, how old the kids are when the divorce happens, the types of kids that they are, you know, sort of the idiosyncrasies of the kids. There are some kids that I think just temperamentally can roll with change much better than other kids. And then, you know, add to that family dynamics, sibling dynamics, and it gets really complicated. The relationship between co-parents affects how families go ahead and blend down the road. Relationships between the kids and each of the parents, geography, where the different subsets of the family are living, how much and what kind of extended family support there is. You know, here with Naya, I wonder the degree to which the kind of rejection and judgment of Naya's family of origin. I wonder how much that also is in the mix here. And I think one of the most unfortunate things about the fact that we have historically shrouded divorce and shame, one of the most unfortunate consequences of that is that a new partner comes into a family system with the wind in their face. Being a step-parent I think is one of the most challenging roles, one of the most challenging positions in a family system. And I I say this as somebody who has not one, but two step-parents in my own life. And I've got lots of, and, and both of my biological parents, you know, are also then therefore step-parents themselves. And so I've seen, my goodness, the complexities of the role of a step-parent. I think a step-mom is really tricky. Like how many fairy tales are there with a wicked stepmother? You know, this whole like, energy around 
step, and I don't even know where the heck that term step comes from, but what I love is that the modern term that I've heard people using is bonus parent rather than a step parent is a bonus parent. I love when we use language that amplifies the goodness and the bounty and the beauty rather than language that kind of reflects the you know marginalization or secondary nature of it. So I love this idea of bonus parents. And my hope and my sense is that if and as this family is able to blend and Naya's boyfriend is able to become kind of more knit into the fabric of this family that really the kids get the benefit of having a bonus parent or a bonus adult. You know, he, at this point in time at 16 and 18, Naya's boyfriend may not ever feel quite like a step parent, but certainly, certainly who who among us does not need additional grown-ups, additional elders who are cheering for us? So I can imagine that as this family kind of gels and smooths out and as the kids open up a bit more, which we're going to get into how to facilitate that, I could imagine the benefit that a really loving older guy might play in their lives. So I think that's definitely important that we're all, no matter where we are, divorce, not divorce, whatever. We all love people who are in blended and blending families. And I think that's the lens we've got to keep on it, that more attentive, loving, patient grownups available to kids, teens, emerging adults, the better, right? We all need people cheering for us. We all need a big, big, <laughs> a big cheering section. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so I'm going to first ask us to stand alongside the kids in the situation, the 16 and the 18-year-old kids. So these kids as Naya has described, have been accustomed to having all of your attention. That really, when they look at you, their whole lives, what they have seen is mom. The, the label on your forehead has been mom. They have seen you as, I mean, they've seen you as a worker and, you know, probably a sister and a daughter and things like that. But really, you're pretty much mom. And they're accustomed, as you wrote, to having all of your attention. And so this is a change. And even if part of them, I suspect there's a part of them, like a sort of rational, logical, grown-up part of them that gets it, that understands that mom is more than just mom does, because they're 16 and 18. They're not little ones here. They get it. They understand that you are more than just their mom. And in their wiser moments, I suspect, as they look down the road a bit, I suspect it would bring them comfort to know that as they launch, they're not leaving mom 
by herself. Not that solitude equals loneliness. There are lots of people who are alone, but not lonely. And there are lots of people who are, you know, in partnerships and lonely as hell. But it may, I can imagine that it gives them some ease and comfort rationally and logically to know that you have a partner as they leave the nest and prepare to leave the nest. But the problem is that not all of them is rational. Not all of any of us is rational. And that change by definition is hard. So, you know, the part of our brain that resists change has zero Fs to give about whether it's a positive change or a negative change, right? There are parts of our brains that don't really understand the difference between a positive change and a negative change. There are parts of our brain that just understand a delta, you know, that there's a difference between then and now. What was is no longer. It used to be like this. It's becoming like that. So for a part of our brain, it's like, uh uh-uh, I'm coding change. Change equals danger. Change equals loss. Change equals threat. And so it's that part of them that gets grippy and clingy and doesn't know how to discern between a change that is bad and a change that is, you know, neutral to positive. And change takes time. In family therapy, there's this thing called oscillation theory, you know, oscillation being like a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And that as we develop, like every developmental milestone that we hit along the way, you know, we go from crawling to walking. It's not just like you 100% crawl, stand up one day and 100% walk. You know, you crawl, you pull yourself up, you fall down. You crawl, you pull yourself up, you take a step, you fall down. There's oscillation, there's back and forth. You know, you're 100% crawl, 0% walk. And then you're 50% crawl and 50% walk. You know, that's, that's how transitions happen in individuals in human development. Well, the family therapists tell us oscillation theory also happens in family systems. The family system, you know, was a couple and they welcome a baby. And so they're like, couple to family, couple to family, and now we're a family, you know, and then the family becomes a family of toddlers, you know, all those sort of family system transitions that oftentimes happen around members of the family hitting different individual milestones. The system shakes. The system doesn't know what to do. So your system is shaking. You've got 16 and 18. You are looking out over the empty nest. You know, you've got your little beak is peering out over the side of your nest. Your system is looking at launching. That is the developmental task of your family system right now. And so I don't know the degree to which your kids are resisting the new boyfriend versus how much the kids are resisting the end of this like team of three that is just rock solid, a rock solid, you know, band of buddies here that the three of you have been for all these years. So I don't know what's what, but I suspect there's a mix that some of the resistance around the boyfriend is actually some of the resistance around growing up and the degree to which everybody can kind of touch that complexity and just sit in that messiness is the degree to which there might be a bit more ease. But a bit more ease does not mean smooth sailing. So All of that is a long way of normalizing the kerfuffle, normalizing the friction. And your job as mama is to keep breathing, (laughs) you know, keep on breathing and keep noticing and to resist the urge to bend that arrow back to you. And I think that those of us who have made it our mission to be intentional 
we are at risk of bending that arrow back to us. Any kerfuffle means that we miss something. We didn't do it enough. I remember sitting my ass in therapy week after week in my 20s. God love my therapist for the amount of patience she showed me over a lot of years. And my mission in therapy was to understand my family of origin well enough, to understand the map of my wounds well enough that I would be able to offer my kids nothing but a wide open plane of possibility to become their fullest selves because their mama had done her job of cleaning up her epigenetics, you know, cleaning up her psychic mess. And therefore, the only thing that she would pass on would be just love and possibility and authenticity. And, you know, I would love to wrap that 25-year-old me up in a hug and say, you tried, girl, like you tried. And thank goodness you didn't succeed. Right, Because, you know, whatever, it's not perfect. And all of the ways in which my wounds still had impact on my kids, that's just being human. And that's just a reminder that there's no such thing as perfection. There's no such thing as done. What all of your hard work is going to offer you is the ability again and again to have compassion for yourself, to have curiosity for your kids. It doesn't have to be perfect but your hard work, your therapy, your intentionality is going to gift you the ability to kind of stay in the mess versus blaming them or blaming yourself. Okay. I wonder what it might be like for you to leverage prior experiences, to kind of rewind the tape and look back at your journey as a mama and think about different moments in time where the three of you have encountered a bump in the road a kerfuffle, a difficult little milestone of some kind. When else have you seen these kids of yours experience a chapter of resistance? What else have they resisted? How long did that resistance last? And what do you remember that helped them adjust? Because I think there's a risk here of you saying that this is a brand new kind of crisis and missing the fact that actually... Y'all have been here before. You've had different versions of this theme. And what can you learn from those other versions of this theme that can help you in this moment, help you practice a little more patience, help you kind of titrate the patience with the push, you know, the like, I get it. I have empathy. And how about you try this, right? What do those old experiences, prior experiences of coming through resistance what might they have to teach you about this moment? I also think that their resistance reflects the power of your attention. The reward in this like kind of perverse paradoxical way, the reward that you get for having been so present for so many years is that you now get punished for being absent. And that, my love, is parenting in a nutshell, right? Like, the punishment reflects the beauty of it, right? It's so hard for them to lose your attention because your attention is just that juicy. Had you been an absent, unsafe, unavailable parent, they might not be quite so reactive to you dating, right? If they weren't anchored off of your attention, it wouldn't be this hard to lose it. Their resistance reflects their love. This does not justify it. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't, whatever, take away the pain of it. But I am inviting and challenging you into a little bit of a reframe here. 
that helps you feel proud of the path that you've chosen. I also wonder for your kids if part of what they're experiencing is what there's a founding father in the field of family therapy named Ivan Bozermany Naj, affectionately known as simply Naj. And Naj talked about this thing called invisible loyalties, the ways in which members of a family system will act out or stay stuck or shrink back or hide out in order to not hurt somebody else's feelings, in order to not betray a loyalty of somebody who matters to them. So I wonder here if your kid's resistance to your boyfriend in part reflects an invisible loyalty they feel to your ex, to their other parent. If your kids get to know your boyfriend and if your kids let themselves enjoy your boyfriend, what do they fear that that says about their relationship with their other parent? Does it feel like if we start to like the boyfriend, we're saying we don't like dad? I'm assuming that the other primary parent is dad. Does it feel like a betrayal? That might be in the mix. And I can see how somebody like you where you've brought all this intentionality, you might miss that actually there are more variables in the equation than just you. Their resistance may say little to nothing about how they feel about you. And it may say a whole lot of something, something about how they feel about their other parent and fears they have of letting that parent down or threatening that, you know, making that parent feel threatened, unloved, unattended to. Okay, so more on that in a moment because I've got some thoughts about how we might leverage your ex in this equation. I want to give some framing for how you might reflect on what your kids experience of resistance, what that activates inside of you. You know, whenever, whenever we, well, you all know if you've listened to the show for a while, you know that we're always talking about studying our reactivity, studying what somebody else's behavior stirs up inside of us. And so one of the things I want to do here is invite Naya, to reflect on her reaction to her kid's resistance, what the kid's resistance stirs up inside of her. That is so essential. That is bringing relational self-awareness to parenting, right? Whenever we're having a moment with our kids, it is very, very easy to get hyper-focused on our kids, what they're doing and what they're not doing. And we can find a parenting blog, a parenting book, a therapist who will help us deal with this problem our kids are having. There's a whole industry around fixing kids, tweaking kids. And what happens when we do that is we miss that really essential piece of the equation, which is what is my kid's behavior stirring up inside of me? And the reason we do that self-inquiry, the reason we look at our reactivity is not to place the blame. It's like either the kids are being jerks or I'm being a jerk. It's not about that. It's not about running a diagnostic. It's about understanding our own internal world first and foremost, because any action we take then is grounded in self-compassion. It's grounded in awareness. It's grounded in a simultaneous commitment to our own healing as well as a commitment to working on the relationship between, in this case, ourselves and our kids. 
when I imagine what this feels like for you, Naya, I imagine this blend of irritation and frustration and anger. And (laughs) that knot of irritation and frustration and anger is not a very comfortable knot for a mom to experience. We as mamas do not pride ourselves on being angry with our kids or irritated with our kids. But I wonder if you can just let that be okay for you to feel. Just let yourself feel the length and width and depth of your irritation and frustration. Just let, not act on it, not be guided by it, but just allow yourself to feel it. And that's important because the energy of your frustration might then become the energy that you use to fuel a conversation with your kids. Again, it's not acting on anger. It's just saying that sometimes anger is a little bit of an alert. Sometimes anger is an adaptive response to feeling like, wait a minute, I get to have good things in my life. It's a little bit of a protest. Anger can be a protest. And so I wonder if you are feeling anger, if what that anger is saying is, wait a minute here, I get to have good things too. A little bit of a healthy protest. I deserve pleasure. I deserve a little bit of escape. I deserve some pampering. And I found myself somebody who can pamper me, who can connect with me, who can remind me of all of my facets. I deserve to feel like a woman in addition to being a mother and a worker and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So again, this is not directing anger at kids. It's just simply saying, if there is anger, that sometimes anger says, wait a minute, let me have something that's mine. I worry that especially a mama who is as intentional as you might feel like anger is not okay. It's not okay to be mad. It's not okay to be frustrated. We have to just honor our kids and their feelings. And I want to invite you to make a little bit of space for your anger to just be what it is. Because one, feelings don't go away just because we judge them. In fact, feelings tend to get stronger when they are judged. And number two, anger can be cultivated, can be transformed into something helpful, into something healthy. And so I have a hunch that you can honor your anger and use it to not just collapse and say, all right, fine, I'll wait till the kids are gone, right? That's, I do not want you to collapse and just say, never mind, I won't date. I want you to stay in that place of activation and creativity and possibility for how this might be able to get worked on, get worked through. I wonder also if there is some shame for you. And I wonder if for you, when your kids are struggling, if there's a part of you that says, My conservative rejecting family was right. It's hard to even say out loud, but if it's real for you, I want to put it out there. And I I think this is such a common theme, right? If if divorce is seen as shameful, if our family system does not support us in a divorce, it sets us up then to feel shame and to feel like they were right anytime and every time our kids have a struggle. And that's not fair to our kids. Our kids deserve to be able to struggle on their own terms rather than having to be perfect in order to save their parents from shame. 
that they somehow did something wrong, right? I want these kids to have access to whatever feelings they have without having to be afraid that their feelings are going to kick off shame in their mom, you know, and then on and on and on. I'm glad that you're working with this problem. I'm glad that you, you know, sent this question in to the podcast because in turning towards it, what you're saying is, I want to give my kids space for their feelings while also giving myself space to date. And that desire to work on the problem is the antidote to shame, right? Because shame would just lead you to collapse. Shame would be, I knew it was wrong. My family was right. I screwed up. I damaged my kids. Collapse, collapse, collapse. And that is a road to nowhere that does not serve you. It does not serve your boyfriend who's like, hello, let's do it. You know, I'm here. And it does not serve your kids. So I'm glad that you, if shame, if shame is present for you, I've got my hand back on my heart. If shame is present for you, I want you to notice that shame story that says, what if my family was right? And then to just breathe and offer compassion and remind yourself that your kids deserve to be able to have the struggle and that the struggle is not commentary on your worth or your choices. Okay. And then also, is there a family of origin wound that your kids' resistance activates inside of you? What does, this is what you may have heard me call the remote block operation. What does this remind you of? The feelings you have, whether that's anger, irritation, sadness, shame, the feelings that you have, what do they remind you of from your past? What's the echo? What's the replay? What's the redo? What's the resonance here for you? I've got a few ideas for you. (laughs) One is I can't have anything that is mine. Like that might be the old story. If you experienced boundary violation, for example, when you were growing up, it may feel like, here we go again. I don't get to have things that are just for me. I don't get to have spaces that are mine. I don't get to have boundaries that are mine. People are all over me all the time. That might be what's kind of poignant or resonant here for you is, um, you know, here your kids are trampling all over this thing that you want. And does that feel like a boundary violation that has echoes to your past? I'm not saying that's what your kids are doing. I'm saying that might be what it feels like they're doing. A second one is it may be the old wound might be nobody sees me, right? Your kids are not seeing you. In some ways, that is excellent. That shows that your kids are being teenagers. They're being appropriately myopic teenagers who really are focusing on themselves because they have to, because the entire architecture of their brains and their souls is getting transformed right now. They're going from kids to grownups. Like what bigger thing could there ever possibly be? So if their energy is all focused on themselves and, you know, they may not be aware that their turned up noses and judgy faces have an impact on you, right? Good for them. Fine for them. It's not their job to take care of you. But the impact that may have on you, on little you, may be, here we go again. Nobody sees me. I'm invisible. You know, as mamas, I think we're, we tend to feel invisible anyways. As mamas of teens, that can be even bigger. And so then for those of us who have a little bit of a wound around having not been seen as kids, that past and present, that's that kind of like time warp that Daniel Mate refers to it as like a time warp, that what was past is now present. 
right? So there may be a way that you are activated around your kid's resistance because it reminds you of when you were little, how you did not feel seen. Okay, three is it may be like, I can't do what I want. Why can't I do what I want? Why am I not able to go where I want and do what I want to do and see who I want to see? And that may be kind of an origin piece, a family of origin piece around being controlled. Did you grow up with highly controlling parents? If so, you have a valence, a tendency, a risk to feel controlled. And it feels now to you like your kids are controlling you. They don't get to control you, right? You get to, you know, you can take a relational approach. We'll talk about that in a moment and talk this through with your kids. But there might be a part of you that's at risk of being like, here we go again. Somebody's always controlling me. Again, that past and present getting muddy. And the last one is, is there an or a family of origin sort of pain point here around, I can't get it right. I screw everything up. This idea that I try so hard to be perfect so that nobody else falls apart. Um, for those of us who grew up feeling like we had to be perfect so that our parents would be okay, so that the family would be okay, then any kind of kerfuffle, any kind of problem or pain point feels like proof that we aren't enough, that we've screwed it up, that we've done something wrong, that we haven't tried hard enough. So here again, it may be that the past is creeping in and it's really hard for you to see this as a normative expected bump in the road because it feels to you like their upset means you've screwed up. Okay, so again, the point of the self-inquiry into your own feelings, into the ways that the past connects here, the self-inquiry is designed to help you send some compassion to yourself and designed to help you choose a wise, grounded next step to respond rather than react. By the way, if you haven't done the family of origin roles quiz, that was what I just was talking through, kind of the role you played in your family. Were you perfect? You know, did you feel invisible? Those family of origin roles, you can go to dralexandrasolomon.com slash roles quiz, R-O-L-E-S-Q-U-I-Z. You can take your family of origin roles quiz. Okay, last little section here is where do you go from here? So next steps. I've got a few next steps that I'm wondering about. And the first one may surprise you, but I'm wondering if there's a conversation to be had between you and your ex. Might your ex be an untapped resource here, an untapped source of support? Remember how I was talking earlier about the possibility of there being an invisible loyalty, that your kids won't get to know your boyfriend because they feel like it's a betrayal of their dad. So can dad be leveraged? here? Can dad be a source of support? Can dad somehow give the kids permission? Listen, you guys, if mom chose this guy, if she's into this guy, he's probably a good guy and you should give him a chance. And we've always got what we've got. It doesn't take away from that. I know this is, <laughs> I know this is a big ask. It's a big ask, but come on now. I think this is a really reasonable ask. It's a kind of, it's pulling for the maturity right? That lives inside of all of us that can be tapped and brought forward. And I wonder the power of your ex 
tapping into and bringing forward that part of himself that can say, I trust my kids to get to know him and to love me. I know my worth. I know the place I have in these kids' lives. And therefore, I don't have to be threatened by you dating somebody. Is there a way that you can lean a little bit on him or ask something of him? Might he be an asset here in a way that you haven't thought of, noticed, or imagined? Okay. Second, is there a conversation to be had with your boyfriend? Not that I know. I don't think that there's a whole lot your boyfriend can do differently in terms of encouraging the kids. I mean, he can be kind and, you know, kind of come in, come in gently, not like a wrecking ball or a bull in a china shop. I think that he can, you know, he can be really tempered in his own behavior. But the last thing I want is for him to kind of strong arm anything here. But here's what I'm wondering. Could a conversation between you and your boyfriend help you just feel less urgent, more calm, and a bit more expansive about the whole situation? Is part of what makes this so unpleasant for you a fear that he's going to grow impatient? Or perhaps is there some evidence that he's troubled by the dynamic or he is impatient about what's going on here? So if so, can you talk to him about the fact that it makes you sad too and that you wish that it was different and that you actually are being intentional, being creative and trying to see how you might be able to get some movement here? So I think sometimes what happens is if you know he's disappointed, then it gets harder to acknowledge it. Like you don't even want to look at the disappointment. You don't want to acknowledge his disappointment. But the problem is if his disappointment is going unacknowledged, it may be growing. So there might be something very powerful about you saying to him, boyfriend, listen, I see it. You see it. We both see it. Neither of us loves it. We wish it was different. It isn't different yet, but I'm carrying the hope. I'm holding hope and I'm not giving up. And I'm so grateful for your patience. And I'm so grateful for your grace, right? Because you, boyfriend, are watching me struggle. I do not have this all figured out. I have tried hard as a mama. I continue to try hard as a mama and I don't have it all figured out. And so you're seeing me struggle. I'm seeing me struggle. I don't love it, but I appreciate your patience and I appreciate your grace. And then here's a little bit of a sneaky one. Can you also remind this boyfriend that the <laughs> the benefit to your kid's resistance, is that when you are together, this boyfriend has got you all to himself. Because you have not become a blending family yet, that means that couple time is truly couple time. That you really, when you get to steal yourself away and be with him, you're just with him. So yes, does it suck? Absolutely. Is it all gloom and doom? No, because you still got time, the two of you. Yes, you feel guilty or yes, you've got to kind of bust through your kid's judgment. But when you do that, what you get is time with him. And so to the degree you can, really trying to, like when you have made the choice to spend time just you and boyfriend, can you really just let yourself dive into it rather than, you know, being with him, 
saying to yourself or saying to him, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm hurting my kids. This sucks that my kids don't support. No, when you've made the choice to go be with boyfriend, just be with boyfriend, savor it, enjoy it. Like let yourself be fully there because that's what's going to fuel his patience. And it's going to be what makes this whole thing just a little bit lighter. If you at least get to kind of fill your tank, you know, with time, the two of you. Okay, last one. Is there a conversation to be had with your kids? Maybe you've already done this, but I want to just share a few thoughts about what it might be like to talk to your kids. So they're 16 and 18. They're not six and eight. Before a conversation with these two, I want you to tend to little you, right? Hand on your heart, going into the conversation as an empowered woman, as an empowered mama, as a really open, spacious presence for the conversation. So you are saying to little you, you know, listen, I understand you feel invisible. I understand you feel controlled. I understand you feel like, you know, you've screwed up. But all those feelings, you know, are going to, I'm going to tuck you in over here. You are not in charge of this conversation. The part of me that's in charge of this conversation is the part of me that is wise, that is savvy, that is patient, that is curious, that is kind. That's the part of me I'm bringing into this conversation. All of the other stuff is real. The little me feelings are real. They just don't get to be in charge in this conversation. I would like to see you open that conversation with a description. Kids, you know, thank you for talking to me. Here's what I've noticed. And it's it's descriptive. It's not accusatory. It's descriptive. I've noticed this. I've noticed this. And I want to talk about it. So this is what I've noticed, but I don't know what you're feeling. What you're curious about are the feelings behind the behavior. So you're sharing the evidence, you're sharing the data in a descriptive, not accusatory way, and you're inquiring about the feelings. Can you tell me a little bit about what it's like for each of you that I'm dating? That each of you is important because 16 and 18 might have different feelings about it, different takes about it. So can each of you talk to me a little bit about what it's like for you that I'm dating? And then what are the worries, right? What are the feelings? And then what are the worries? Are you fast forwarding and getting yourselves worried about if mom starts dating, then dot, dot, dot. And one hunch I have is that maybe the kids are resistant because they worry that if mom starts dating, then we're no longer this kick-ass team of three. And what I want to say about that is that I think in a blending family, the full family stuff is so important, right? If and as boyfriend becomes more deeply woven into this family, time the four of you is going to be essential. The three of them, frankly, is going to be essential, right? Boyfriend and your kids, where you're nowhere to be found. That's going to be essential. But I think there's still a way in a blended family that sometime, especially in a family like this, where the three of you had all of those years together as a little trio, I think it's going to be important, even as you blend the family, to have time, the three of you, and to have that not signal to boyfriend that he is less than or that he's unimportant because that's just not the case. It's like, this is the analogy I always use. It's like when there's a, you know, a department and there's, it's really important to have full department meetings, you know, to have every member of the department present because that's how you get good stuff done. That's how you build, you know, teamwork. It's how you build your company brand, et cetera, et cetera. 
And it's also important to have subcommittee meetings. Sometimes you can't have everybody at the table. Sometimes it's really helpful to have a subcommittee meeting. And so, you know, the fact that you have some amount of subcommittee meetings doesn't take away from the full department meetings. It just means that sometimes there's some business that is just the business of the subcommittee, right? Not better, not worse, not more, not less, but different. There's different gatherings have different purposes. Sometimes a full football team needs to meet together and sometimes you just bring the D-line together. (laughs) I love that I just used a sports analogy. Sometimes you just need to have your D-line there. Not because the D-line is better than the full team, not that the D-line is less than the full team, it's just different. So that may go, you kind of talking to them about that idea that even if an as you know, we weave boyfriend in here, the three of us are still who we've been. The three of us still have a history and a legacy and a specialness that does not go away. And we still would have time together, the three of us. I think it's really important in this conversation with the kids that you explicitly convey, I respect where you're at. I don't need you to be anywhere other than where you are. I'm not coming into this conversation in order to get you to feel different. I'm not here to strong arm you. I'm not here to sell you on him. I'm not here to convince you. I'm not here to change you. I'm not here to judge you. I'm just here to line up the three of us and look together at the problem. That's my position. That's my orientation. It's the three of us looking together at this problem, which is that the two of you seem to be resistant. The two of you seem to be struggling. The two of you seem to not be particularly curious to get to know this guy who's pretty special to me. So I respect where you're at. I don't need you to be other than you are. And I wonder if we could even just talk about what the littlest baby next step might be. And maybe the littlest baby next step might just be that I talk a little bit more to the two of you about boyfriend, that I share a little bit more about the dates we've had or the conversations we've had, that I just weave him in a little bit more into the conversations, right? That might be the next step. The next step might be that if and as, so I think I think there's something really powerful about this conversation of you, Naya, sitting down with the kids and just opening up a curious conversation about what are, you know, what's going on here and what's happening between the three of us around my relationship with boyfriend. And that in and of itself might be enough to loosen the grip of their resistance. It might be enough. And if it is, then I think you can start to talk about what might be the littlest next step around a little time together. And a couple of thoughts I have there is I think you could ask the kids, If we were to start to try to figure out how to spend little bits of time together, what might be the least awkward way for you guys to do that? What might be the least awkward way for you guys to spend some time with him? My hunch is it's going to be something around an activity, right? Rather than like he comes over and you guys just sit in the backyard or sit around a table, that you're doing something together. Ideally, something novel together, something where all four of you are kind of newbies. You're all sort of floundering together. I don't know what that looks like, a zip lining or a canoe 
you know, adventure or hiking on a new trail or putt-putt golf or a cooking class, like activity-based, low stakes, kind of high, you know, silliness or at least high novelty so that you're all kind of out of your comfort zones. I can imagine that being a really nice kind of first way or first set of experiences. And that it's brief. And that when it happens, I'm going to say when, not if, and that when it happens, that mama backs up, that mama doesn't try to do a hard sell of like, oh, boyfriend, tell the kids about da-da-da-da. Oh, oh, kids, tell boyfriend about da-da-da. No, that you just kind of allow, that your compass north is just, I'm allowing, I'm allowing, I'm trusting, you know, I'm present, but I'm not directing. Because you are the centerpiece, you know, you're sort of the fulcrum, you're the the center of this little system, but you're not in charge of it. Everyone is in charge of how they show up and how they contribute. And I think, you know, kids are really sensitive and they're going to know if you're trying to do a hard sell. And it can be clunky. Your efforts can be clunky and also heartfelt. The clunkiness does not take away the heartfeltness. Okay. Woo! My goodness. Obviously, Naya, thank you for bringing this question to the podcast. I know that you're far from alone in this experience. And that's why I want to take all of this time and just travel through all these little nooks and crannies of this question because it's so important. And there's actually been a lot of questions that have come into the podcast about blending, introducing. So this is really present for so many listeners to the show. And I hope there's nuggets in this episode for you as a listener that you can take and that you can work with and use and that will serve you well and that will serve your family well. All right, take care. And until next time, be well. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.